Welcome to the Aerospace Advantage podcast. I'm your host, John Slickbaum. Here on the Aerospace Advantage, we speak with leaders in the DOD, industry, and other subject matter experts who explore the intersection of strategy, operational concepts, technology, and policy when it comes to air and space power. So if you like learning about aerospace power, you are in the right place. To our regular listeners, welcome back. And if it's your first time here, thank you so much for joining us. As a reminder, if you like what you're hearing today, do us a favor and follow our show. Please give us a like and leave a comment so that we can keep charting the trajectories that matter to you most. This week, we're going to talk about a topic that's been in the headlines a lot recently, and that is the Biden administration's decision to authorize the transfer of F-16s to Ukraine, plus help facilitate the broader support enterprise with things like pilot training. It is no secret that the Mitchell Institute has long supported this course of action. We've talked about it on the podcast, we've been interviewed in the media about it, and we've published op-eds supporting the transfer. We've also been a regular presence in Congress as members ask for our inputs as they seek to better understand the issue. So, bottom line, this is a really positive development, but we wish it would have come a lot earlier. We've got to be honest here, the World War I-like attrition fighting is simply brutal. And given that Russia is so much bigger, that's not a fight that Ukraine is likely to win. It's simple math. That's why harnessing the air domain to break out of this surface struggle is so important. And we are not Pollyannish about this at all. We know the Russian air defense challenge is significant, so the losses we're likely to see in the sky are going to be significant as well. But it's one of the few options Ukraine has to change the dynamics of the war, and we owe them that chance. So to explore this development and what it means, we've got our very own Lieutenant General David Deptula, the Dean of the Mitchell Institute, here with us today. Sir, welcome back to the podcast. Yeah, hey, it's great to be back. We also have our very own Major General Larry Stutzream. Stutz, welcome back to the show. Hey, thanks, Slick. Good to be back. And finally, we've got Doug Berkey from our team as well. Doug, welcome back to the show. Hey, man, always a pleasure. Thanks. Now let's jump right into this. You've all been really vocal on the issue. I've seen you in the news this week. You've published op-eds over the past year. It's clear you've got a stance on this. So General Deptula, let's get started with you. Why is this so important? First, look, thanks for the opportunity to talk about this extraordinarily critical issue. The fact of the matter is that neither time nor manpower is on Ukraine's side. Let's face it, as a smaller nation, 43 million versus Russia's 142 million, Ukraine cannot support a ground war of attrition indefinitely. Putin will win that fight. Let's be clear, regardless of how incompetent his military leadership, is simple math. Now, without either side achieving air superiority, this war has devolved into an artillery slugfest that resembles World War I more than the rapid victory of the first Persian Gulf War of 1991. Air power is the one asymmetric advantage that can break this stalemate and fundamentally give Ukraine a decisive advantage over the Russians. Why? For our audience, combat aircraft can traverse hundreds of miles on a single mission. They can shift from one front and or mission to another within minutes. They carry thousands of pounds of ordnance, and they can use powerful sensors to understand the battle space in real time. That's the sort of capability that will allow Ukraine to target Russian long-range fires by detecting and destroying their rocket batteries, offensive drone launch sites, and combat aircraft and missile sites 
that are holding vast swaths of Ukraine at risk, or to provide air defense for cities and interdiction and close air support for ground forces, providing them a synergistic advantage. Remember President Zelensky's request to Congress to close our skies. That requirement still exists. An aircraft, modern Western combat aircraft, are the key to meeting it. There's a reason why every single advanced nation prizes advanced air power, because without it, you're stuck in a brutal fight like we see playing out in Ukraine. Yeah, sir, I really appreciate those words. And I want to get Stutz in here as well, because, sir, you wrote about the threat environment earlier this week, and the administration was really vocal about you talking about this in a binary fashion. And for those that are unaware, have this you fly in your dead type of scenario. So what's your take on all this? And this mindset is so wrong, and it's incorrect, and it's very misleading. I'd go further to say it's defeatist and self-deterring. It's not the reality. Here, here you've got Ukraine facing an existential threat to its survival as a democracy. And if it doesn't survive, it's going to be enslaved by Russian-controlled buffer to NATO and become that. There needs to be a very quick change of heart and an urgency to get Ukraine the tools it needs for an integrated air campaign. So while the Russian ground air defenses are integrated and highly effective, there's no doubt about that, every system It's the rule of the study of war. Every system has weaknesses. The approach is to identify and exploit those weaknesses. So the alternative is what? Take your fighters that you might give to Ukraine and let them duel with the highly effective S-400 batteries? That's not what we're talking about. And IADS is composed of sensors that emit energy, they detect aircraft, Uh, Missile batteries used to shoot at targets, communications that are both voice and other messaging means, command and control, and that's more people and more comms. And there's a huge logistics tale of everything from uh, more surface-to-air missiles that need to be resupplied, fuel, food, patterns of life of the troops manning these systems. Oh, and by the way, morale is not necessarily high. There's an increasing reliance on conscripts by the Russians. And I would say after 18 months, this has had really ground on the nerves of air defense personnel, and that can be exploited. So the links that integrate all this can also be attacked. Decoys can be employed, the Russians did, slick to the Ukrainian air defenses. There's surprise and deception. There's cyber weaknesses. There's electronic warfare. There's weapons. No system is impossible to defeat. We think about the Maginot Line. The use of air helped to bypass a defense thought to be impassable. And so we have another example in the Bakal Valley in Lebanon back in 1982. And those were Soviet air defenses at that time, early versions of what the Russians have today, thought to be impenetrable, but the Israelis used F-16s, F-15s, and the great F-4 aircraft to really take apart in an orchestrated, coordinated air campaign And the results were devastating, those air defenses. That's how we have to think in terms of our support to Ukraine. I couldn't agree more. It's just a daunting task that we unfortunately have to think about it, but it is not a binary scenario, right? It's like I want to jump in. And it's important for people to understand. The Ukrainians can do this with fourth-gen aircraft, but that is at higher risk. It's higher risk the United States wants to assume. So we also need to be very clear that fifth-gen 
is where we need to be because the attrition that's going to be involved in all of that is going to be significant. Eyes wide open on that. However, when your back is against the wall and your family is literally fighting for survival, those are the chances you take. And what Stutz is saying is you can pick this thing apart. You can seek out the seams, and that's crucial. But I just want to toss a slick question your way. You served as a wild weasel pilot. And for those that aren't familiar with the term, those are the folks that go against the SAMs. How would you approach a challenge? Yeah, no, Doug, I really appreciate the question. And to be honest with you, beyond just serving as one, being a weapons officer, and then also teaching that at the weapons school, we really dove in as weasels to understand this integrated IADS the way that Stutz described it. So there's many more parts. I think one of the things that is a bit different is for these folks, they're essentially taking off underneath the enemy missile engagement zone. But to that point, it doesn't mean that you don't fly. And and I think as soon as an airplane does fly and you do have your sensor suites and ju- not just what's on your airplane, but the whole air power enterprise, it's going to be very telling quickly. Yeah, there may be some losses, but it's not the 10 foot tall giant that some people may think it is. Now, General Deptula and Stutz, you guys both came of age in the Cold War and you were both trained to fly into serious threats. And it's something that our Air Force hasn't really thought about for a long time. And you were also trained by Vietnam veterans. And we all know that they knew how dangerous war was and they took massive losses and had a lot of their buddies, if not themselves, shot down. So what sort of mindset does this take from a pilot perspective? We haven't had to think like this in a long time. Uh, yes, look, it, it's a much different perspective than flying in the permissive airspace of the last 20 plus years in counterinsurgency fights. Remember, I'm the guy who planned the takedown of the most significant air defenses ever put in place in one place, and that's over downtown Baghdad in 1991. In that area, they had more air defenses than Hanoi at the peak of the Vietnam War, and more than even Moscow itself during the Cold War. And as Stutz and Doug have mentioned already, ground-based air defenses are not invulnerable. They can be rendered ineffective either for a short period of time when you need to get in there, do something, and get out, or completely over a longer period of time. The options being dependent on the resources at hand. And that's why it's so important to get F-16s into the hand, hands of the Ukrainians and to do that fast. Some of the, as Stutch mentioned, some of the nonsense that's coming out of people in the Pentagon about the invulnerability of ground-based defenses is simply perpetrated by people who have never planned, nor do they have much of understanding of how to employ air power. That's one of the reasons why it's so important to get a mix of perspectives in the leadership positions in the Pentagon. Because today, you look, you got an Army four-star general who is a Secretary of Defense. You got an Army four-star general who's the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. You got an Army general who's the director of the Joint Staff. You got an Army general who's the head of Joint Staff Operations. How joint is that? They've forgotten that the number one air defense system in the United States, protecting our cities and our people since 9-11 has been what? The F-16. I'm also someone who is shot at repeatedly by the Iraqis while leading missions over northern Iraq doing Operation Northern Watch, and who put together a campaign with our combined task force to completely eliminate all the SAMs in our area of operation. 
Now, granted, those were lesser system, lesser capable systems that are currently operating, the Russians are currently operating. But listen, if you take a campaign approach, these surface-to-air missile systems can be negated, thereby allowing the advantage that air power can provide across the 600-mile-plus front that Ukraine has to deal with. You can't do that with tanks. You can't do that with infantry. And you can't do that with ground-based air defenses. Now, the current Western formula of slowly approving weapons for Ukraine and then waiting to see if they're effective and then repeating the process simply plays into Russia's hands. We cannot wait until Ukraine is ultimately on the ropes before getting them modern combat aircraft. Training personnel, building up the infrastructure, logistics supply chains, and so on for Western fighter aircraft is going to take time. We know that. If we'd begun to do this effort last year, modern combat aircraft would already be in Ukrainian hands. And continuing down this current path of excessive pondering and delayed action is in a more immoral vector in the face of continuing Russian atrocities. By the way, some of the recent comments from senior leaders who ought to know better on the utility of providing F-16s hedging the potential of air power in the Ukrainian-Russian fight are more political than realistic, and they're simply not helpful. They also play into the hands of the Russians and reinforce the notion of Russia's rhetoric deterring U.S. action in support of Ukraine. And it ought to stop. Hey, Stutz, you want to hop in here? That was pretty damn good. I don't know if I want to. <laughs> yeah, that was fantastic. Let me talk about attitude a bit, because you did ask about what it was like to be brought up by those Vietnam veterans. I was an F-4 young fighter pilot in the Philippines, and these guys were tough. They really made you figure it out. And if there's one thing in terms of attitude I learned from those fighter pilots was don't wait, figure it out now. Figure it out as if your life depended on it. Believe that nothing is insurmountable and make the higher-ups hold you back. Just go for it. Let the bosses say no too far, too risky. It's very different from what we have right now. And in the last 20 years, we've grown up a lot of leadership that are really conditioned to minimize risk, and that's what we're seeing a lot, hand-wringing, waiting. As General Deptula said, 18 months, going on 18 months, dabbling and thinking and worried about air power support to Ukraine. and it looks like they're headed down a road for another 18 months. So think about 36 months, what you could do in terms of building air power capacity into Ukraine. There's this, the work that Robin Olds did, a great air power uh, fighter pilot in Vietnam. He was the eighth wing commander and it was terrible. They had, they were taking losses all throughout Vietnam. We're not just talking Air Force, we're talking Navy too. There was not good intelligence sharing. At the time there was a, terrible morale problem, uh, and uh, there was not much trust in, in orders that were coming down from higher headquarters. And so Robin Olds calls together what came to be known as the Red River Rats. They exchanged information among the war fighters, and they figured it out. And it, every day was another test. If it didn't work, they tried again. They went after the problem. They acted as if anything could be overcome, and they didn't wait. Uh, because they were under active fire. The urgency to equip Ukraine is very similar to what they 
needed to do back then to beat what is considered an unbeatable Russian air defense system, it's just got to be done. And it's not just about the airframes, but all the other capacities that are needed to really allow the Ukrainians to open up periods of air superiority to be able to take the fight downtown. Okay. As you're talking, Stutz, a statement that most people out there in, in radio land ought to recognize is one made by our current Air Force Chief of Staff, C.Q. Brown. And it's very appropriate here. Accelerate change or lose. That applies with respect to supplying and supporting the people of Ukraine. This is where they're just going to have to hop in and do it. And to both of your points, I think when it comes to the pilots, they are going to jump in and do it. They've proven it already with their MiG-29s. They were going into harm's way. And I think that mentality that may have been lost will get relearned really quickly. And I think that people, especially when it's your own country like that, you have the fighting spirit, they're going to get in those jets against all odds, and they're going to try to do their best. I think what some folks may be talking about is it's going to take more than just airplanes. So I want to get Doug's take here. We need pilots, maintainers, spare parts, munitions. So can you break this piece of it down for us, Doug? You're right. It takes a whole bunch of elements to pull together this. It's like a bunch of puzzle pieces come together to net a whole picture. And I also want to highlight here, it's not just the F-16. That is a very capable key component of this, but there are other types of aircraft that are going to be very important. And in many ways, when we think about this, it's a layered type approach. And so I think there's a huge role for unmanned aircraft in this equation. So for example, how do we create a tiered level of employment where the unmanned systems take the more higher risk level engagements, and it allows the manned assets to employ where we really need that human in the dimension, but you can throttle risk a little bit here because pilots are absolutely one of the hardest commodities here to backfill, especially when yeah. attrition is in play. And so think about this. If you have an unmanned asset, either the SAM takes it down, and if it is not that costly of an unmanned asset, you're actually becoming a SAM sponge. Russia is a huge country. They have significant borders that have to be defended. He can't concentrate all the SAMs in Ukraine. He's got other areas that he's got to watch. They can only produce so many. So if they're actually firing these things off against low-cost assets, okay, that actually works numerically. Secondly, if they don't choose to fire, well, fine, then, this, then the UAV takes it out. And so you win both ways. And it's a way, again, like what Stutz is saying, where are the seams here and how do we put them in difficult decision spaces? And that allows the manned aircraft, the F-16s or others, to, to work in other zones and share the risk. But past that, like I said, the pilots are huge. We really have to manage the notion that attrition is going to be in play. They can rapidly transition the pilots they've got now to Western aircraft. But how do we ensure that we have a pipeline of new folks flowing in to ensure that it's a viable enterprise over time with attrition? So that means new folks entering the pipeline. Maintenance is complex. It's going to take a while for those guys to be spooled up. I actually think it might be useful to use contractors for while the organic forces are training up. And then there's a the handoff. You have the organic guys that are doing the work, but maybe the contractor's overseeing. And then finally, you do a total handoff. Spare parts. The good news about something like an F-16 is that there are tons of spares all over the globe. So those need to be flown in on a very routine, regular basis and tracks so that we don't have jets on the ground that should be flying. Then finally, munitions. This has gotten tons of headlines over this campaign. We need to be getting them the right kinds of munitions for the effect that can meet the threat and ensure that the volumes are in play to sustain it and watch our other global equities in play here. We can't throw everything in Ukraine. And that means really looking at the, kind of the stockpiles. And then 
Stutz talked about this. There are things that we have to talk about with cyber capabilities, again, exposing the seams with the, the integrated air defense systems. You've got base defenses. These aircraft are going to be operating from somewhere. You even have to think about how do you do the civil engineering in case those airfields are attacked? Who's going to fix a cratered runway? So there's a whole enterprise here that has to go into the mix, but it can be done. And so it's just about biting into it and moving out aggressively. And this is all viable. This is not hard. It just has to be done. Yeah, let me just jump in here and confirm some of the things that Doug said. First, he's right. Logistics and maintenance support are the linchpins in getting the entire F-16 enterprise up and running for the Ukrainians. And that said, what's so great about the F-16 is the size of its worldwide force. Over 4,500 have been built and are out there. And therefore, there's huge availability of contract logistics support. That's going to be key in getting Ukraine's Air Force and Operational F-16 Squadron up and running ASAP. And then the transition to indigenous training can occur. All right, Doug, well, you alluded to the previous question that you asked me, but I totally agree with you that how I would handle this as a weasel is I'd love to see some other assets up. So if they start taking shots at UAVs, that just helps us positively locate these things and attack them. So I think that you're right. There's a whole group of things that need to come together. But let's be honest, we're talking about it right now. There is risk and there's going to be attrition. So how do we help the Ukrainians handle attrition? Because again, we know it's going to happen. It's already happening, Slick. That's one of the main reasons to transition Ukraine from its Soviet-era air force to a Western-based air force. And there's really, and Doug alluded to this, a two-phased approach that needs to be followed. First, convert the existing fighter pilots and transition them from SUs and MiGs to F-16s. Then second, create a pipeline that trains new pilots while continuing the flow of F-16s into the Ukrainian Air Force, while then building up their own indigenous maintenance and support infrastructure, eventually weaning them off of contract logistics support. So in a nutshell, I think that's a path that needs to be followed. Hey, by the way, let's all talk about attrition of Russian capability. I just want to make it clear that as I said earlier, the Russians are pretty smart in how they try to saturate Ukrainian air defenses with decoys. Not real sophisticated, but boy, if we put a couple Air Force fighter pilots, a major and a lieutenant colonel, an intel person, and so forth, they would come up with all sorts of ideas to see lots of shots come off of Russian air defenses. And don't forget, they have to maintain capacity just like we do. They have production capability limitations just like we do. But they have a huge front along NATO that they, they have to protect with their air defenses. They can't just put it all down in Ukraine. Attrition goes both ways. This is exactly why when the Air Force is trying to retire 48 MQ-9 sitting in crates out in the desert, we've got to get these things over ASAP because it's part of this integrated approach solution. And let's get on with it, guys. We've got to move. Yeah, let me jump in there. I, it is so frustrating uh, to reiterate Doug's point where the Air Force wants to retire 48 MQ-9s, which are sitting in storage, that they could be made immediately available. And then, once again, the Army-dominated Pentagon leadership questions the use of MQ-9s due to an asserted susceptibility to a fully robust and capable Russian integrated air defense system. 
However, what some of us are proposing, the use of the MQ-9 for, is a long-range sensing and targeting aircraft that stand off ranges, not to fly it into the teeth of a fully robust and operational integrated air defense system. Moreover, if the U.S. donated MQ-9s that it plans to get rid of anyway, as is mentioned earlier, the aircraft could provide value to Ukraine even if they get shot down. MQ-9s, for example, could force Russia to expand air defenses of its own. And then, here's another piece no one's talking about. You put effective electronic countermeasure pods on the MQ-9s, and they could be quite survivable all by themselves. Uh, This could also be used to highlight Russian radars so Ukrainian forces could then attack them with surface to, with air-to-surface missiles or surface-to-surface missiles, especially if the U.S. got off its position of not providing Army Tactical Missile System or ATACMs to Kiev. That needs to be the next thing that happens, and it needs to happen quick. All right, so now I've got to ask you this question. Where do we get the depth of aircraft that are going to be needed? Just four months ago, About a dozen F-16s were returned to the Netherlands from an unexecuted U.S. commercial adversary air training company order. They've got many more available. Then Norway just sold 32 F-16s to Romania and have dozens more available for sale or transfer. Denmark is another NATO country looking to replace its F-16s as it brings F-35s on board. And the U.S. Air Force just retired 47 F-16 CD models in FY22, both the Alabama and Wisconsin Air National Guard units are transitioning from F-16s to F-35s, offering additional options. So there are lots of aircraft available if the administration chooses to make them available. F-16 aircraft are not lacking from either the NATO nations or the United States. Now, and you think about it. There are organic capabilities, too. At AMARG, that's out of Davis-Moth into Desert, where we store their tire jets to regenerate those. If you even have a QF-16 line that it turns F-16s into drones, they pull them out of the desert. You don't need to put the drone package on it, but they can get those jets live again. There are capacities here that we can tap into. And something like MQ-9 that we've been talking about, there's a company that has capacity that can reactivate those very fast. Again, it's looking for solutions, not focusing on reasons to say no. Yeah. And let's talk about timeline for a second. This will take time, but it's got to start now. That's the theme of urgency. A democracy in Europe about to be exhausted. What, 18 months from now, we'll be still be talking about this. This is something to begin immediately. I had an opportunity to catch up with Daniel Rice yesterday. So a shout out to Dan, miss him on the podcast. We're always talking about things, looking through the China lens. And this isn't just about Ukraine versus Russia. Obviously, China's watching and learning this response. So it's got to impact their calculus as they consider actions in the Pacific. How does this transfer shape that thinking? Slick, you're exactly right. What's happening in Ukraine has major global implications, especially when it comes to China. It would be disastrous to send a signal that aggressors ultimately win if they just outlast the United States and its allies. So the continued U.S. support to Ukraine is actually a vital U.S. interest. The difficulty that the Russians are having uh, should also cause President Xi in China 
to pause his aggressive buildup and question his own plans for the armed acquisition of Taiwan. And so should the free world's response in isolating Russia economically and with unified support. Think about it. Every strategic objective that Putin sought has been reversed already. He wanted to weaken NATO. What happened? NATO got stronger, not weaker. More nations have joined NATO. If you had talked to anybody 18 months ago and asked them what the likelihood of Finland uh, in Sweden joining NATO, most people would have laughed at you and said, eh, not a chance, not in our lifetime. And here we are. They've both been invited to join. Finland's already in. Sweden, it's going to happen once Erdogan gets over his election issues. And then there's Switzerland, with 200 years of neutrality under her belt, has come out and decried Putin's actions. Now, she doesn't want to suffer the same consequences. There are some potential positives about this in the context of how China interprets what's going on, but it takes resolute action, and particularly on the part of the United States, to continue to support Ukraine. Let me take us back to just after Desert Storm. Desert Storm was interesting in that we took about six months in the Desert Shield to prep up, place forces, source forces, everything from setting up tents to getting munitions, planning, and so forth, intelligence collection, and so forth. Six months, and then we trounced Iraq. Now, we said throughout the period after that, no country, after seeing this display of American air power, would ever allow the United States six months to get ready to schwack them. But yet, we watched the Russians do this very thing on the border of Ukraine and look where that went. In the case of China, the fact that we have the oldest and smallest capacity air force ever in its history, China is not going to allow the United States time to build up and get ready for a conflict in the Indo-Pacific. They would be insane to do that. And so there's, in addition to the urgency to support Ukraine, look inwards. There's a need to very urgently restore and modernize increase the capacity of the U.S. Air Force because it's going to be the primary fighting arm in the Pacific. I do love that for our listeners, we're zooming out here for a second. So I've got to ask the question since I have you all here, what are the broader lessons from this experience that we need to take away? Yeah, let me jump in on this. And it's, I want to hit this point. You hit it earlier. Stutz just hit it. It's time. We've been surrendering time and that is insane. Stutz just said six months to build up and execute both Desert Shield and Desert Storm. It took us over a year just to decide to transfer aircraft. It took <laughs> about a year to tra- decide to transfer tanks. Yeah. And that's just to decide. It's not even talking about the whole transfer and everything else that has to occur. This is nuts. And that is moving at the speed of bureaucracy, not at the speed of combat relevance. And people are more worried about process and effects. That speaks to folks in charge that are not waking up to the challenges we face. That is how you lose. And we've got to get over this. And it will take a massive psychological shift. And I'm really worried we are not there. You look at decisions that are going down right now. For example, we've got an ally in the Pacific that just ordered some new aircraft that literally could be produced tomorrow. They are being told they can't even get them within three years. And that is in one of the biggest threat zones we have. Three years? 
think it could be playing out in that period. Don't you want that ally to have that now to help deter China? Especially when we're spread so thin. We got to wake up. This is dumb. Well said, Doug. The risk of being self-deterred also lets an adversary run the tables. Specifically, you know, yielding a sanctuary to Russia to operate from is, I hate to use the word that we've been using a lot today, but that's pretty insane too. Didn't we learn that lesson by giving sanctuary to the Chinese during the Korean War? Or giving sanctuary to both the Russians and the Chinese during the Vietnam War? It's also important to highlight that the administration is spending billions on a strategy that right now is likely to allow Russia to win through time and favorable attrition tolerance. That is truly the most expensive option of all, especially when viewed in a global context and implications for the contest with China. Now, if modern fighter aircraft can give Ukraine an advantage over the Russians that additional artillery rounds cannot, investment in the fighter aircraft is the wiser strategic choice, and it needs to be done now. ASAP. The other piece here is this notion of a strategy as long as it takes is a bankrupt strategy, as we don't have the time to take as long as the Russians do, nor do we have the same amount of war material and manpower to match what they're willing to put into the fight. This goes back to my very first comment on the physical demographic size of the nations. We need to strategically, or I should say the Ukrainians, along with our assistance, need to strategically outmatch the Russians. And that's what modern air power can do. What's unaffordable is a grinding war of attrition where Ukraine bleeds to death over an extended period of time. There's one perspective I'll throw in, and that is from the Ukraine experience lesson and watching what's happening there. First of all, we've talked about attrition, but attrition is real. It's questionable whether we here in the United States are accurately factoring that in to our reserves and our, even our pilot inventory. But there's a need to be able to scale everything, our industrial capacity, our pilot pipeline, our ability to manufacture and restock munitions. We know they're too small as they exist, that is for the United States. And it takes too long to restock them. This is not a posture we need to be in in any way, shape, or form in the modern age of threat, especially with respect to China. All right, gentlemen, I want to turn the conversation back for what does this mean for the United States as we look towards the need for fifth gen with the F-35, protecting the F-22 and the B-21? We're way behind the power curve on modernizing the inventory. Yeah, we are slick. The fact of the matter is the United States Air Force is currently in a serious aircraft death spiral. That's not hyperbole. That is fact. We are currently the oldest, the smallest, and the least ready Air Force in our entire history. And guess what? The programmers have us on track to get even a thousand planes smaller over the next five years. So, if we want to execute our nation's defense strategy as written, not some forecast strategy, but as it's currently written today, we must stop the Air Force's decline. And what that means, very simply, is procuring more aircraft per year than we have been. 
Now, this particular year, the first year in as many as anyone can count, um, that the Air Force finally has reached a combat fighter procurement rate of 72 aircraft per year. That simply sustains the average age of the force. So the Air Force needs to do better than that. That means that the Air Force leadership needs to advocate for the resources that it needs to meet the demands of the nation's defense strategy. Because for too long, 31 years in a row, to be exact, the Air Force has been funded less than the Army and the Navy. Okay? That's if you take out pass-through, which is money that doesn't go into the Air Force's budget, but it's included in the Air Force budget. Let me repeat that. For 31 years in a row, the Air Force has been funded less than the Army and the Navy, and that's why the United States has the oldest, smallest, and least ready Air Force in its history. Is that what we want to be prepared against the emerging threats that we see exploding around the world? So this isn't just an Air Force issue. This is a national issue. And every element, every joint force operation requires some element of the Department of the Air Force in order to work. So we need to get down to business and we need to stop the decline of our nation's Air Force. I want to jump in on what General Deptula said. And that's also this notion of divest to invest. And that is the Air Force is trying to retire aircraft to free up funds to buy new ones. It's a bankrupt strategy. And think about this in the Ukraine context. It taught us that concurrent theater demand is a reality. We were trying to focus on China. Guess what? Russia kicks off a war in Europe. The adversary gets a vote. We have to handle multiple theaters. And like General Deptula said, the downswing in the aircraft inventories are so severe, we're not going to be able to handle those concurrent demands. And that really incentivizes adversaries to step up and take risks because we're not going to be able to respond. It also shows that, look, threats tomorrow are very important, but they're really bad threats today. We can't just say, hey, let's hit the pause button, roll the dice for 10 years, and and we'll get back to getting real in a decade. It doesn't work that way. We've got to maintain things for today as well and prepare for tomorrow. It's both. And then we've hit about it a lot, but we've got to have the ability to take attrition. Pure fights are going to be hard. And we've got 1,900 fighter pilot shortfalls now. That's in a time of peace. How are we going to sustain wartime losses? We just don't have elasticity in the system. We've got to fix that stuff. Yeah, Doug, really good. Uh, Let me add that this divest to invest, our attention's captured on the airframes, right? That we uh, retire airframes, but we forget about everything else that goes along with that airframe. And as there's key things that are part of the orchestration of air power, when we retire our AWACS aircraft and Joint Stars aircraft, suddenly we have a battle manager career field that's been developed over 30 or 40 years, even further back than that. Uh, suddenly what? They are pushed out the door. What's the plan to preserve that experience and resources? Another example is MQ-9 Reaper. These are RPA pilots. They're on-ramp to the future in terms of an Air Force that's looking right now at having both the teaming of uh, manned and unmanned aircraft. That experience is priceless, but where does it go? Does it exit the Air Force? So your divest to invest has a lot of second-order consequences, which are actually a lot having to do with the human resources. That might be even more important than the airframes in terms of preserving. 
Yeah, I couldn't agree more with that last point, Stutz. You all raised some really great points. We're always getting tight on time, and this could be a three-hour-long podcast, I'm sure. I want to get us focused back with the one final question here, back on Ukraine and the transfer of the F-16. So I've got to ask, and I want all three of you to weigh in, how do we assess whether this transfer is working or not, and what does success or failure look like? General DePue, let's get started with you. Yeah, it's pretty obvious. It's a change in operational circumstances in Ukraine's favor. That's going to be the measure of success. The question becomes, when do you, what's your timeline to taking a look at answering that question or measuring that success? And that's going to be dependent upon how fast we can flow resources and train up the pilots to be able to field at least an operational squadron. I know squadron sizes are different in Ukraine, but I'm using U.S. squadron size. So when you get at least 24 operational aircraft over there up and running, that's when we ought to take a look at if there's a change in the operational outcome in favor of Ukraine. I'm going to expand this a little bit more on the global stage. I think we need to look at how our countries like China internalizing these lessons. And look, we've complained a lot in terms of saying this has taken too long and all that, but at the end of the day, it still has happened. And there's a united international front for the most part, and the costs upon Russia are real. And I think it's very important to track whether China is really absorbing that it is not in their interest to repeat that kind of situation. And Doug, I just correct that in that we're not complaining, we're providing sage advice that the leadership in this administration ought to listen to. Yeah, I'd shape that General Deptula to a bit of a caution and that how we assess how this is working depends upon how it's done. And as you said earlier, most of the people who are making judgments on this or maybe working the mechanics behind it know about a paragraph in the book of Air Power. Uh, we've got folks who had 30, 40 years of experience studying the book and like you, contributing to that book as history goes on. So these airframes need to be adequately supplied. They need to be adequately equipped. They can't just be aircraft. There's more to be done to be able to establish the air superiority and then therefore the striking power that Ukraine needs. Yeah, incredible discussion. Again, I can't thank you enough for being here. General Deptula, General Stutstream, and Doug, thanks so much for being on the Aerospace Advantage again. Hey, Slick, yeah, it was great. Great discussion on uh, everybody's part. Thank you. Hey, thanks, Slick. I really appreciate all the work you do. No, I appreciate it, Slick. Take care. With that, I'd like to extend a big thank you to our guests for joining in today's discussion. I'd also like to extend a big thank you to our listeners for your continued support and for tuning in to today's show. If you like what you've heard today, don't forget to hit that like button and follow or subscribe to the Aerospace Advantage. You can also leave a comment to let us know what you think about our show or areas you think we should explore further. As always, you can join in on the conversation by following the Mitchell Institute on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or LinkedIn, and you can always find us at mitchellaerospacepower.org. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Stay safe and check six.